Turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts, chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. And I'm going to be reading beginning in verse 1. Please follow along silently as I read aloud from Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, uh, they ought to be here before you and to make the accusation, or, and should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Father in heaven, we come before you today grateful for your word, grateful to be able to gather together at our campuses and grateful to be able to join thanks to technology for those who are unable to be with us on this day. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word and that today we might be changed as a result of hearing truth from your holy and perfect and excellent Word. Lord, we think particularly of the people who are uh, alone today. Lord, would you be with them in a very special way? Father God, would you cause them to be very aware of your presence? Would you cause them to be very aware of the indwelling Holy Spirit that is among them? And so that while they are alone, they may not ever feel alone. And so we thank you for being with all of us, whether we're here or far away. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the beginning of the TV show Law and Order, we were always reminded that in the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separately yet equally important groups. The police who investigate the crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. Do it with me. Tong, tong. Right? There's that law and order sound that we don't, nobody knows what it is. It's, it's, it's the eighth wonder of the world. We don't really know what that represents. Dunk, dunk. I just assume one dunk is law and the other dunk is order. Dunk, dunk. And that's law and order. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the scene of the alleged crime, the accusers, the prosecutors, and Paul. And just like a good episode of law and order, These are their stories. Now, what we just read is the first of three hearings that Paul has before important officials. And law and order never starts out in the courtroom, right? That's the end. And so we need to go to the scene of the alleged crime. And to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to go back to Acts 21. So you might want to flip there or scroll there in your Bible app. And we're going to fly 
pretty quickly from Acts 21, which is the scene of the alleged crime, all the way up to the hearing, which is in Acts 24. So, Acts 21. Now, just as a little bit of a refresher, it's actually the sermon that I preached last from Acts 21, where Paul was, he had come back from taking kind of this tour and this traveling uh, group that he had when he was going around through his missionary journey through Asia Minor, and he was collecting money to bring to Uh, the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so he gets back to Jerusalem. He gives them the money. He's like, this is what the Lord has done. He tells them about about his ministry. And they look at him. They go, praise God. Thank you for the money. Here's what we need you to do. And they say, there's lots of people here who are preached, who are spreading rumors and lies about you that you are teaching that Jews have to abandon entirely their Jewish heritage if they become a Christian. And so what we want you to do, listen, we have these men, they've taken a vow, go take this vow with them, uh, pay for their vow, by the way, please pay for their vow and yours, go into the temple, this way people will know you're not, you're not really doing that. And this way, actions speak louder than words, so they'll know that you're not preaching against Jewish heritage, you're not saying that people need to do that. Because you yourselves are carrying out this particular vow. Well, he does that, and that flies like a lead balloon. So look at verse 27. Because after he does that, this is what happens. Acts 21, beginning in verse uh, 27. When the seven days were almost completed, that means the seven days of the, the vow that he had taken, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, now watch this, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Why do they say he brought Greeks in the temple? Look at verse 29. Well, they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Oh, awesome. That's really cool. So just saw him in the city, and now just supposed that he brought him in the temple. And so in our, what we read in the scripture in Acts 24, you'll realize Paul is before Felix and is essentially being accused of three things that are brought to you by the letter S. The first is sedition. Uh, Sedition. That's a violation of Roman law. It's insurrection. It's inciting violence and inciting a riot. Sedition. But if you look back in what we just read, look at Acts 21 verse 27. It says, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd. And so what they're saying is that Paul stirred up the crowd, but in reality, they themselves stirred up the crowd. He's being accused of sedition. The other thing he's being accused of is sectarianism. Sectarianism, that's a violation not of Roman law, but of Jewish law. Leading a sect, and not just leading a sect, it's not that he's leading a small group, right? It's just that he is leading a sect and being accused of preaching and teaching heresy. So that's what he's being accused of. Sedition, sectarianism, and finally, sacrilege. Sacrilege, a violation of God's law defiling the temple. By bringing a Greek into the temple, they're accusing him of defiling, attempt, defiling the temple. So that's the three things he's being accused of in the text that we read as we opened up in Acts 24. Sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. But as you can see from what took place, he did none of those things. None of those things. And so they arrest him and he speaks to the people. But if you look at what he speaks to the people, he doesn't go in to necessarily defend himself. But in Acts 22, so now go to Acts 22, he speaks of his testimony. That's what he does. As he has this opportunity to speak to people, he shares what the Lord has done in his life. Acts 22, beginning in verse 3, and he does that all the way through Uh, Acts 22, beginning in verse, uh, or ending in verse 21. And as he shares his testimony, he talks about what he was doing before the Lord had entered into his life, and or the Lord had saved him. And then what happened on the road to Damascus, and how he was radically saved, and then commissioned to work for him. So he shares his testimony like any good testimony. I was, but God, so now. Every good testimony. I was, but God, so now. And he was saying, I was against Christianity. I was against Christians. I, I persecuted Christians. I would enjoy persecuting Christians. This is what I was doing. But God changed my life. God changed my heart and my mind. And so now, I'm not persecuting Christians. I'm converting people to Christianity. And then you'll see what he ends with in verse 21. He ends with what Jesus said to him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, once again, this also flies like a lead balloon. And so instead of being very touched by how the Lord has worked in his life, 
Uh, they want Paul to be further examined. And by further examined, they mean tortured. And so they want him to be examined under torture. They want him to be flogged. Look at Acts 22, beginning in verse 24. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, okay, so he's about to be flogged, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, hey, question, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Spoiler alert, it is not. And so he asks this question to let him know, oh, what you're doing is illegal. He's very aware of his rights as a Roman citizen. So it's not, so he's not flogged. So then he stands before the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so move over to Acts 23. Acts 23, beginning in verse 6. Uh, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of dead that I am on trial. Verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for the assembly was divided. So violence erupts out of something Paul said. Not anything Paul did, but he says something, and then there's, there's uh, uh, this violent outbreak between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The leaders of the alleged people of God, the supposed people of God, they erupt into this violent outburst. Uh, verse 12. So when it was day... The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. And so now we're moving from angry to hangry, right? Because all of a sudden they're really wanting to get at Paul. And they're like, you know, what? we're not going to eat or drink until we have killed Paul. And so, well... The end of that story is they don't get Paul. They never kill Paul. So I'm wondering, did they die from starvation? I don't know how seriously they took their oath because they didn't kill Paul. So did 40 people die? I don't know. It's not in the text, but moving on. This word gets to the Romans and they realize we want to have a trial, but there's going to be, there's going to be great violence. They're going against the person that needs to stand before Felix. And so look at what happens. Pick it up in verse 12, Acts 23, verse 12. When it was day, uh, I'm sorry, actually, skip down to verse 23. He called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers, do the math with me, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Night began at 6, 6 plus 3 is 9, and so they're doing this at 9 o'clock at night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So two of the centurions he called, and he said, get ready, 200 soldiers... With 70 horsemen, I don't know if that means 70 of the 200 horsemen or if it's an additional 70, anyway, and then 200 spearmen. So we're talking at least 400, possibly 470 people to transport one man to a trial. Do you know why they were using, they were required so many people? It's very simple because everyone was losing their minds. Everyone was losing their minds. There's people who want to kill Paul. There's people who want Paul tried so that he can be condemned, but they would rather condemn them himself before he has the opportunity to be tried. Everyone's losing their minds. And so they gather together 400 people at least to take Paul to the trial to make sure that he doesn't die before he gets to the trial. It's crazy town. And so that's where we get to in Acts 24. Paul gets there, he stands trial before Felix, and represents his case Ron Swanson style, in that he represents himself, and he regrets nothing. The end. Now, if you look at verse 11, here's what he has to say insofar as the accusation against him of, of uh, sedition. Uh, verse 11, Acts 24 and verse 11 says this. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disrupting, disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. He's saying, I was in Caesarea for five of the 12 days, and then many of the remaining days were taken up with the purification ritual that I was undergoing. And so I didn't really have time to incite a riot. Not, I, I don't want to incite a riot, but ain't nobody got time for that. I was so busy. I was in Caesarea. I was doing this, this ritual that I was in the temple. I didn't incite a riot. Uh, there's no way that I could have done that. 
And when they did find me in the temple, I was peaceful. I wasn't disputing with anyone. I wasn't stirring up the crowd at all. In fact, it was them who were stirring up the crowd. Now, technically speaking, you need to realize that right now, Paul has been exonerated, or at least he's made the case he needs to make. Because Felix cares about sedition, because that's a violation of Roman law. But he doesn't give a rip about sacrilege. He doesn't really care about sectarianism. That's all, it's kind of like your problem. You're the religious people. I don't care if they defile your temple. I'm a Roman governor. I'm a pagan. I don't care about your temple. But Paul goes on anyway, and he goes on to state his case and state his defense. Uh, Sectarianism, he's being accused of being a ringleader, okay? A ringleader in the Greek. That's the Greek word protostatus. It's a military term, meaning one who stands in the front rank, one who's right out in front. They're accusing Paul of being a leader of a heretical sect. So what does Paul say? Well, if you look at verse 14, he doesn't deny that he's part of the way. He doesn't deny that he is a Christian. He denies that it's a heresy. Look at chapter 24, beginning in verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He's basically saying, I believe everything they believe And then some, because I also believe in Jesus Christ who fulfilled the prophets, who fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament and fulfilled the law. But I believe everything they're saying. So he doesn't deny that he is a Christian. He doesn't even deny that he's a leader. What he does deny is that it's a heresy. I'm believing scripture. I'm teaching scripture. I'm not teaching anything that I shouldn't be teaching. I'm not a heretic. And finally, the charge of sacrilege in verse 17, he says... After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. I didn't do anything that was wrong in the temple. I didn't defile anything. In fact, everything they're accusing me of doing, they themselves have done on their own. And so instead of making a decision right then and there, Felix says, I'll decide your case later and keeps Paul in custody. But it's pretty low-key. Visitors were allowed to tend to his needs, etc. And this remained the case for two years. And that's how this episode of first century law and order ends. And the closing song plays, right? Okay. Bong, bong. And that's it. The credits roll. And maybe we can all go home. Except not quite, right? Because this isn't law and order. It's Grace Fellowship Church. We are family. And this is the word of God. And so we should never treat our time together like a TV show. Now I realize several of you are watching from home and you're like, I feel like it is a TV show because I'm literally watching on TV. Right. What I mean by that is we should never treat our time together as if we're just coming together for entertainment. Right, on Sunday morning, we're just coming together just to, just to kind of chill, just to watch something that we enjoy. Wow, that was a nice song. That's cool. I like how he said that. As I considered this text and the events leading up to it that we just finished walking through, running through, I really wondered what application the Lord would have for us today. I mean, Acts is a historical narrative. It's a narrative portion of scripture. So it's, it's never wrong to just read it and say, and that's how it went. Right? It's written to tell us how it went, how it went down. And that's what God did. And now we know what happened to Paul. But I wondered what else the Lord might have for us on this particular Sunday. And as I studied and prayed and spent time in the text... I was gripped by one verse that I want to spend what time we have left unpacking and applying. And it's Acts 24, verse 16. Paul, in the middle of his defense, says this, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Look at that verse and, and hear the Apostle Paul in a, in a trial. 
saying things in his defense, which he masterfully does, as we just saw. It's pretty open and shut. He was being falsely accused, and the burden of proof is on the accusers, and they come up woefully short. And in the middle of his defense, in a legal proceeding, where he's representing himself, right? They have Tertullus, he has himself. And where anyone who knows anything about any legal proceeding knows that the more you say, the more you're likely to hang yourself with your words. Right? You know, this, the legal proceeding is not the time where you're like, I just got to get some things off my chest. Think, let me just add this in. No, no, no. You keep it short, you keep it sweet, and you speak to the issue at hand and no more. But he adds this verse. Which, by the way, is not integral to his defense at all. Uh, you could read through the entirety of Paul's defense and skip verse 16. It would lack nothing. It would be just fine. But there it is, verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and men. I always take pains, verse 16. That word translated pains, if you're reading the ESV like I am, or strive, or I always do my best. It's the Greek word askeo. And it's helpful when you look. How else is that? Where else is that word used in the scriptures? And let me see, like, how else the Lord is using that word. That's always a good way to study and prepare for a sermon, to do a word study in that way. It's really hard when it's only used in the verse that you're preaching. Well, shoot, right? <laughs> That's it. It's only used here throughout the entire New Testament. It means. To form by art, to adorn, to exercise oneself, take pains, to labor, and to strive. Wait, what? Like, wait, you started out with art, you're ending with taking pains and laboring. But that's the definition. To form by art, to adorn, to exercise oneself, to take pains, to labor, and to strive. Now, our church is full of very, very talented people in a variety of different ways. I'm sure you're aware of that. Dal Blumberg is a sculptor. Matt Langford is a sculptor. Samuel Greenhill is a photographer. Now, I know that two out of three of those people go to Fort Thomas, but that's not the point. You've got to fo- focus, okay? Just, just stop. Like, let's focus. Very talented individuals by the grace of God, given skills that are truly admirable. Now, probably like you, I've spent a fair amount of time playing with Play-Doh. Probably like me, you know it tastes salty. I have a camera in my phone. I take pictures. I've never worked at it. Like I, I shove the Play-Doh in the thing and I, and I push down and it comes out spaghetti. I'm thrilled. Look, Ma, I made spaghetti. Salty spaghetti. Or I mix the colors and I, I build something and I, I like to roll it out and then like put two eyes at the end and say, look, I made a snake. This is the extent of my sculpting capabilities. The extent of my imagination, and every once in a while I taste it. It's really weird. I take pictures and I post them to Instagram. I take pictures of my kids and I send them to my mom. You'd be crazy to call me a photographer. You'd be out of your mind to call me a sculptor. When... When Matt Langford sculpts, when Samuel Greenhill takes pictures, when Dow Blumberg sculpts, they are laboring. They are exercising. They are striving. They are painfully aware of details that we know not of but benefit from in the long run. 
painfully aware of what they're doing, of the lighting, of the size, of the color, of the image, of the story. And right now they're listening and they're saying, yeah, there's words you don't even know. And it's true. This is the best I can do. Painfully aware of these things as they exercise the God-given gifts that they have. But it's not just, they're not playing with Plato. They're not just taking, yeah, here's a picture. But they're so good at what they do because it is in every way, shape, and form art. And it is in every way, shape, and form work. They labor. They're not just messing around. Painstakingly laboring in what they're creating with their God-given gifts. When Paul says he always takes pains... To have a clear conscience toward both God and man. That's the word he uses. It's an art form. And it's a labor intensive work. He doesn't say, I always try to have a clear conscience. I hope to have a clear conscience. Maybe I'll have a clear conscience. It would be good if I had a clear conscience toward God and man. He says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience. It's a wonderful reflection of the words of our Savior who teaches on what the greatest commandment is, right? Matthew 22, Mark 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus never mentions one without the other. In fact, oftentimes he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he replies with two commandments. Because the Pharisees claimed love for God in their pious actions, but showed little to no love for their neighbor. And so Jesus is basically saying, if you really love God, you'll love people. If you don't love people, you probably don't really love God. What about you? Could it be said of you that you, like Paul, who's imperfect, like let's admire the man, but let's not deify him, right? Imperfect. Do you take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man? Is that on your mind? Is that something you shoot for? Is it a a value of yours? The title of the sermon is How to Maintain Your Testimony While Everyone Loses Their Minds. I chose that title because it's 2020 and everyone is losing their mind. So I don't think I'm losing my mind. All right. Most people are losing their minds and some are in denial that they're losing their minds. But in every way, shape, and form, I think we're all being affected and impacted in our minds and in our hearts, whether we want to admit it or not, by this crazy-go-nuts year that we've been a part of. One of the ways you could see this is what I call buzzword brawls. There are a few select words right now that can land you in a brawl that you maybe never intended to be in. You were not trying to pick a fight. You were just saying. But there's a few words right now that you can use and It'll land you in a brawl. Let's say somebody says, my heart's really broken about race relations. Someone else responds, what? So you're behind these violent movements rooted in Marxism? You're you're for anarchy? And they're like, wait, what? I just said my heart is breaking about this. It's just sad. You're a Marxist. I don't think I am. I just said that my heart was aching. Let's say you say, My heart is just broken to see our country torn apart by violence and rioting and anarchy because it does not glorify God. Then someone says, what, you don't care about people of color? Oh, I said, I hate the riots. You're for racism? Yes, I'm for it. Yes, that's exactly what I was trying to say. Everyone's losing their minds. 
I don't know if you caught it, but two times in the account we just read through, a buzzword brawl broke out. Go back to Acts 22. At the end of Paul sharing his testimony, look at verse 21. He says, and he, speaking of Jesus, said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Look at verse 22. Up to this, what? Up to this word, they listened to him. Up to that word. But then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. It's not funny, but if I don't laugh, I'll cry. So if he's sharing his testimony and they're listening and they're listening and they're listening. And then they decide that he probably shouldn't live. Wait, what? I'm just just telling you what God said. God has sent me to the Gentile. They heard Gentiles and boom, that's all it took for them to say he should not be allowed to live. Oh, wow. So you're, you're for pagans? You're for paganism. That's what happens? God entered your life and now you're for paganism? You're for the Gentiles? You shouldn't live. It's a buzzword brawl. Later on in Acts 23, look at Acts 23. Verse 6. Paul says, brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees, is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the assembly was divided. Verse 10. And when the dissension became violent, right, it became violent. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away. A buzzword brawl. Hope for the resurrection. Now, one side believes in the resurrection of the dead. One side doesn't. And so the way to settle that is by punching. Wait, what? Buzzword brawl. Everyone's losing their minds. But Paul, although not perfectly, we'll see that in a few minutes, maintained a positive, effective witness throughout it all. Not perfectly. But he wasn't going to lose his mind with everyone else. He was going to stay focused. And he did that by Acts 24 and verse 16, by taking pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. And friends, we're living in one of the most mentally draining, emotionally taxing times of our lives right now. And I'm not saying this is a problem for you. You got to get it together. I'm saying it's a problem for us as Christians. I'm speaking with people who are saying, I've never felt this way before, or my stress level is higher than before. I have a tightness in my chest that's not normal for me. My fuse is maybe the shortest it's been in my whole life. It's the most mentally draining, emotionally taxing times of our life right now. And I don't know how it's going to end or when it's going to end or if it's going to end. But I do know this. I want to do well now. I want to finish well then. I want to please God now and then. And I think in order to do that, I need to be like Paul and take pains to have a clear conscience Toward both God and man. And so I want to look at three ways you can maintain an effective God-glorifying witness during these times, even though everyone is losing their minds. Uh, Point number one, you'll maintain your witness by connecting with your Savior regularly and consistently. If you're watching online, don't touch that dial. If you're at one of our campuses, please don't check out. Pastor Brad and I aren't Bible thumpers who have a goal to get everyone on a Bible reading plan. We don't, we don't like make a commission if you read your Bible regularly. You know that, right? I'll tell you why you hear us say it so often, so many times and so consistently, literally almost every week. The first point you've probably heard before, that is this. Your Bible isn't just a, a really good book. It's just not the best book ever. It's not amazing. It is the living, breathing active word of God that can change your mind and heart like nothing else. Like nothing else. It's not just, this is really good, there's lots of good books, but this is the best. 
Okay? It's not about being readers. It's about being feeders. Because man cannot live on bread alone, but needs every word spoken by God in the scriptures. Now, that's always been the case. That's reason number one. But reason number two, I'll go out on a limb here and say this. That in the 14 years I've been at Grace Fellowship Church, I think less of our church family is probably reading their Bibles than ever before. And that concerns me and, quite frankly, scares me. I'll talk with people. I won't even ask. What do you think? I meet someone in Kroger and I'm like, so you're reading your Bible? Like, I, I, don't, I don't do that. Where are you at in the word today? Like, I'm not, trying to, ha-ha, I'm not trying to catch people. I won't even ask. But people will say things like they've, they've been far from the Lord for a while now. Or they're not in the word like they were before COVID. Or something along those lines. It, it's fairly consistent. Friends, of any time in your life, this is like not the time to be neglecting a regular, consistent practice of meeting with God, because everyone is losing their minds, and you'll go down with them if you're not feeding on God's word. Don't believe the lie that you can see clearly without God's word. You cannot. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, talking about how he sees now, says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. He says, now I know in part. He's talking about how he sees life, how he processes life, what he knows now. It's dim. I only know in part. But the Bible is a lens through which we view life and people and issues and circumstances around us. I don't think you need to hide behind your Bible during times like this. Oh, I know it's a, it's not a shield. It's a sword, Ephesians 6, right? I don't think you need to hide behind your Bibles. I do think you need a lens through which to interpret life and culture and people. And if you're not meeting with God on a regular basis, you're not viewing life and culture and people accurately. Your vision is blurry when you think it's clear. Don't believe the lie that you can see clearly without God's word. Don't believe the lie that you can do rightly without God's word. In Psalm 119, in verse 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, the Amy Grant thing. No, no, it's, it's, it's a biblical thing, right? It's not just a song. It's literally God employs this metaphor in the word of God to say you can't see without it. You can't walk without it through life. Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. Don't believe the lie that you can do rightly without God's word. Don't believe the lie that you can see clearly without God's word. I don't wear glasses. I know many of you do. It's like all I can see of your face. Do you ever not wear glasses on a Monday because you wore them so much over the weekend? I've worn them so much. I'm so familiar with the way I drive. I just take No. Because you need that corrective lens. Don't believe the lies that you can see clearly or do rightly. And don't believe the lie that you are the one best acquainted with your own motives. That's why David prays to God saying, hey, search me. Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Like test me. Poke me. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. Because I, I think there could be because I'm blind and I have blind spots. So see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so what about you? What is your practice of connecting with Christ and how's it going? I don't want to see like you're, you know, are you on a, are you on a streak? I, I, I just want to know how, how is your practice going? 
Because times like the ones we're in will impair our vision. But that's not the end of the world. Vision can be fixed. It can be corrected. It can be helped. And God's given you the best, most reliable set of corrective lenses ever. In his word. And we need to interpret everything, everything through the corrective lens of Scripture. It's not about you reading your Bible so you can say you read your Bible. This isn't about you praying so you can say you prayed. It's not about that. This is about having the ability to rightly interpret life and people and events and culture so you really can be used by God in this time and don't run people off the road driving through life without the corrective lens that you need. Secondly, you'll maintain your witness if you humbly admit when you're wrong in the way you were right. If you'll humbly admit when you're wrong in the way that you're right. I think there's ample reason to believe Paul was affected by the events of his day as well. I think it impacted his mind. I think it impacted his heart. Like I said, Paul is, he's, he's just a man. He's a pretty awesome man. True. But the best of men are men at best. And so he's really, he's a, he's a dude. He's a sinner. Like I said, let's not deify him. So I think he was impacted and affected by the times that he was living in as well. And I think we can see that in Acts 23. So look back to Acts 23. Acts 23, beginning in verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, here similarly, right? Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Can you do me a favor and smack him in the mouth? So that's what happens. But in verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, my time out. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written... Exodus 22, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. If you're wrong in the way that you're right, you're wrong even though you're right. Paul wasn't wrong in anything he said. If you just read the text... Calls him a whitewashed wall. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He wasn't wrong in anything he said. But he was wrong in the way that he said it. And when he realized that when it was called to his attention, he didn't defend himself. He humbly admitted fault by quoting Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight to them, showing he knew he was wrong in how he said what he said. I don't know if you've caught it, but I'm a pretty passionate guy. Particularly and especially when it comes to communicating. I've, like any good preacher, I've poured hours into sermons doing my best to discern what the word says. To discern what I want to say. But then spending gobs of time into thinking through how I want to say it. Hours. I'm also a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a nephew, I'm a friend, I sit in meetings, I'm an elder, I'm a staff member, I'm a Facebook user, I'm an Instagram poster, and I'm a pretty passionate guy. When passionate conversations take place outside of a pulpit, in my kitchen, I'm not afforded the hours I take to prepare a sermon. And I've been guilty of being wrong in the way I was right. Does that make sense? And then you have this conversation with yourself, right, when you're in that moment. You know what you said was right, probably said it in the wrong 
way. And you're like, whatever, whatever, text over tone, whatever. It needed to be said. It's like, ah, oh, you probably said that the wrong way. It wasn't matched the truth. I was just speaking truth. They can get over the way I said it. It needed to be said. When they stop feeling bad about it, they'll go back to what I said and they'll probably agree with it and see my point. Paul didn't do that. Right? He didn't do that. When they said to him, would you revile God? Would you speak this way against God's high priest? He could, he could have said, whatever, you're going to hell anyway. Also true. What do I care what you think of me? It needed to be said. I don't care. Smack my face. Please, sir, may I have another? He doesn't say that. Why? Because he takes great pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. What about you? Think about a time you were right in what you said, but wrong in how you said it. Recall the last time that happened. How did you roll? Paul admitted fault. Did, did you? Did you seek forgiveness for that? Or did you just brush it? Whatever, it needed to be said. It's fine. They'll get over it. And they might, and they likely will. But if you're wrong in the way that you're right, you're wrong even though you're right. You'll maintain your witness if you humbly admit when you're wrong in the way that you're right. Why? That's what we do. That's what Christians do. It's not what liberals do. It's not what conservatives do. It's what Christians do. And finally, you'll maintain your witness if you use your God-given voice to stand out among the noise with the message of the gospel. Paul shares his testimony of what the Lord had done in his life when nobody really asked. It's great. Right? He's being accused of things. He's arrested in the temple. And he's like, here's what God has done. Here's what I was. Here's what God did. Here's what I'm doing now. He uses the opportunity to make much of Christ. He uses the opportunity to share the gospel. Is it a defense? I mean, kind of, but not really in Acts 21. Acts 22, he's talking in these ways. He's making much of Christ. This is what Christ has done in my life. I was, but God, so now. But almost along the same lines of the you need to connect with God. I'm concerned that people do a mental eye roll when they hear someone mention the hope they have in the gospel over every other human institution and solution. It's the gospel. Jesus. And I just want to ask you, is, is the gospel still... Is the gospel still glorious to you? Is grace still amazing to you? Or have the events of what's going on in our lives right now darkened the light of Christ that at one point you were like, wow, that's beautiful. Oh, wow, I'm, I'm being, he paid for my sins. Oh, wow, he's, I'm being treated better than I deserve. I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm getting something infinitely better than I, oh, wow. And that which is going on in our lives causes us to go, yeah, 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 yeah. The gospel. Is grace still amazing? Are, are those realities of the unchanging truth of God's word, the unchanging truth of the good news of the gospel, are they present in your walk with Christ or is that just a part of your past? 
I used to be on fire for the Lord. Back when I was on fire for the Lord. Are those past tense? In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, it's in the outline. Jesus says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So there's a gospel. People keep saying the gospels. This is a gospel. Take heed. First Corinthians 1, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to who? To those who are what? Perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that's why Paul says, for I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. And you'll maintain your witness if you use your God-given voice to stand out among the noise, to not be an echo, but to be a voice, to not echo what everybody else is saying, but to be a voice. And speak the glorious truth of the gospel. And to think through how the gospel impacts these other things. And how we as Christians would take great pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Because there really is only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. Right? And that name always has been and always will be Jesus Christ. He's the name above every name. He's the only one who can save. There's no one like him. And so we build our lives upon a foundation of the word of God, of the gospel, This is our foundation that we build upon. It's not just one of the building blocks and there's another foundation. It's it's the foundation. The hymn writer rightly said, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. And so let's do well now and let's finish well later. By not sounding like everyone else, by not just being an echo, by not just reverberating the noise, but by being a voice and a voice for truth. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Because we know nobody comes to the Father except through him. Father in heaven, you are holy You are righteous, you are merciful, you are slow to anger, you are abounding in mercy, you are overflowing with steadfast love for your people. We who have been the recipients of that are grateful beyond measure. Help us to maintain an effective witness during the most difficult of times. You have done this before throughout generations, through people. This is not hard for you. But Lord, I come to you now and I say it's very hard for me. So would you help me? Would you help my brothers and sisters? Would you help us to do well in your eyes for your glory and for your people's sake? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.